Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Norman Horn, and today we are joined by our special guest, Dr. R.C. Sproul, Jr. He is a sinner saved by grace. He served as a pastor, a professor, a conference speaker, and a writer. He and his wife, Lisa, have been blessed with 13 children, and he writes and produces a podcast for JesusChangesEverything.com. He also has a new book out that is a kind of a memoir and remembrance of his father, who many listeners may know as the theologian R.C. Sproul. Dr. Sproul Sr. passed away at the end of 2017, and this memoir is a wonderful book to kind of get introduced if you haven't encountered his thought before. Uh, it's a great way to get encountered with him now, and uh, and we're just so pleased to have R.C. Sproul Jr. here today to talk about his book, about his work, and many more things. So, Dr. Sproul, thank you for being here. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. My pleasure. I'm happy to be with you guys. Well, it's, uh, it's definitely an honor and a pleasure uh, for so many reasons. And so let's begin with the book itself, since that's kind of the occasion for the, the, what kind of brought us together here. Um, tell us a little bit about your dad and who is R.C. Sr. Tell us a little bit about your book, and then we'll kind of get into some additional context perhaps to, to kind of set the stage of some of the topics we'll talk about today. Well, my father was certainly one of the most influential Reformed theologians in America over the last 40 or 50 years. And Definitely. Yeah, in some ways, it's sort of like being the, I don't know, the shortest person on a basketball team. I mean, there's a, <laughs> there's a sense in which if you are a part of that subcategory of the evangelical church that identifies as Reformed, then you've probably heard of my dad. If you're an evangelical and you're not part of that subcategory, you've maybe heard of my dad. Uh, if you're not an evangelical, chances are you haven't heard of my dad. So there, there's this you know, big fish in a, in a small pond point as I'm trying to get to. Over the course of his uh, life and ministry, my father was blessed to have published over 100 books. Uh, they're still coming out even now, a year and a half after his uh, passing. And uh, he started a large uh, ministry called Ligonier Ministries that now has uh, Renewing Your Mind Radio, Table Talk Magazine, Reformation Bible College, all a part of that ministry. And he also served for about 20 years as the pastor of St. Andrew's Church in Orlando, Florida. So he's been, oh, he's you know taught in seminaries and colleges and across the world. He's very influential. And you know, when he died, or what well, before he died, while he was alive, I would always tell people, you know, because he was so smart, that the question he probably got more than any other was, you know, the the great philosophical difficulty of where did evil come from, right? And even though in some sense I, I have followed in his shoes, I always describe that this way. My father and I are in the same type of work in the sense that uh, 
<laughs> a space shuttle and a paper airplane are both man-made flying objects. <laughs> uh, Arguably one of the greatest quotes in the entire book. No, no, oh, no I know it's self-deprecating and all that, but gosh, it was great. <laughs> well, yeah, to, to balance out the self-deprecation, I thought it was pretty funny too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, he... The, the question that I got more than anything else is what was it like to have R.C. Sproul as your father? And the thing is that that question comes from people who know him as a theologian. Right. Now, I'm, I'm emphasizing the book that he was a, a genuinely charming man. He was very warm. But what people experience of him as a theologian and what I experienced from him as a father are going to be significantly different. And what I wanted to do in part was to say, you know, all that great theologian stuff, it's true, it's real, it's you're not mistaken about that. But I had the blessing to have him as a father, and he was a great father. And a big part of that, it sort of melded together with a ongoing concern that I've had for many years about the evangelical church, that and particularly the Reformed end of the evangelical church, and that would be this, that Reformed people are very adept at being careful with their theology. We're the ones who who are, are sure to cross our theological T's and dot our theological I's. But, you know, if you want a warm, loving person, you probably aren't going to race <laughs> to the local Reformed church. Uh, and that, that reflects, again, this concern that I have that, that we're very good at thinking through abstract theology with great care, but we're not so good with really owning it, with really having that theology shape our lives and our hearts, you know, and impacting us from top to bottom. And what I wanted to do was, was kind of show how that, that doesn't really describe my father. My father was able to live, I mean, this, this, think about it particularly in light of the gospel. So much of the great theological battles that he was engaged in in the latter half of his life were after dealing with the issue of inerrancy in the early 70s, then in the early 90s, the gospel became the big issue, and he was very zealous to defend the sound biblical doctrine of the gospel, but he also just really got it. It's sort of like like Jesus, if this is not heretical, <laughs> well, hopefully we're becoming more and more like him yes, every, every day. So that's okay. We can yeah. say that. But if you think about who is the greatest theologian ever, the answer would be Jesus, of course. Yeah. But if you want to describe <laughs> Jesus, one of the ways that the scripture describes him is he's a he was a man who would not harm a bruised reed or who would not extinguish a, a smoldering wick. There was a gentleness about him. Yeah, And that was so true of my father that I wanted the world to see how the gospel, the truth that we have peace with God, because Jesus not only died for our sins, but he led a righteous life for us. That when you really get that from top to bottom, it impacts how you look at each other. It impacts how you treat each other. And one of the blessings that I had was in, in light of you know failures and sins, you know, my father never stopped loving me. He never, you know, caused me to doubt that my heavenly father loved me. So that sort of visceral gut embracing of the gospel to me is even more important, as important as the other is, but it's even more important than the precision and the, if I can use an engineering term, 
what's that little thing that measures little tiny distances a micrometer <laughs> that that would be one of them yeah <laughs> uh, you know the, the the micrometer level distinctions about different views on on justification yeah. again that's very important i'm i'm a systematic theologian that stuff matters to me but at the same time i've known and to a degree i have been the person who can get down to that level and not really grasp the reality that I really am a sinner, that Jesus really did die for me, and that my Heavenly Father really loves me by name. But to the extent that I do get that, I get that in large part because of what my Father modeled for me. That is, that's really great. And, and I, I love how the perspective in the book, which by the way, in my excitement here, I didn't even say what the title of the book was. How silly of me. But the, the title of this book for, for our listeners is Growing Up with R.C., Truths I Learned About Grace, Redemption, and the Holiness of God. And even what you've said already, Dr. Sproul, is just is already exuding that. And that's so good. And, and you know, there's you, you really focus so much on R.C. Sr. as a loving father to you. And that was really exciting because for a lot of us, those of us like me who kind of did, uh, quote, quote, grow up with R.C. in a different way, from uh-huh. afar, if you will, we see him primarily as kind of that public-facing theologian, if you will. And, and in fact, I'd like to, you know, relay a little story here, well, you know, kind of as we're, as we're about this. And it's significant here to LCI as well. And that's that, you know, when I was, when I was a high school student, uh, I was a homeschooler in the state of Missouri and, and a bunch of friends and I got together and we decided we were going to start um, like a kind of a, a reading group or, or, or watching group in this case. <laughs> and, and the reason we ended up calling it the, you know, the, just the philosophy group, that's, that's literally the name we came up for it, was that we began with R.C. Sproul Sr.'s The Consequences of Ideas series which was, of course, on VHS back in the day for all of our, our uh, little millennial listeners who don't know what that is. You, you'll have to go to Wikipedia and, and see what that is. Guys, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> Alexa. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Ask Alexa that, right? Yeah, but, but the consequences of ideas was really a, a crucial moment for me in my intellectual development, like to such a great extent that uh, – that I'm, I would question whether or not, in many respects, whether libertarianchristians.com and ultimately the Libertarian Christian Institute would have even happened had that not been in my life. And so, despite like I'm, I'm not, I'm not in the Reformed tradition, uh, but man, oh man, did I really latch on to you know your dad's way of thinking, his uh, his presentation of theology. I love the Holiness of God series, and even where I differed with him. I respected so much the attention to detail, the razor sharp intellect that he would bring to the table, but also like you kind of indicated there, the warmth and and really uh, to use a probably overused word, the authenticity of how he presented himself and the gospel and these ideas in such a way that that made so much sense and it was just so impactful upon the way that I thought. And so, you know, and and just the opportunity even to learn more about that with you, through you, if you will, in the book was was really wonderful. And to kind of get it, that different side of things a little bit uh, was just, it was just wonderful. And I'm, I'm so thankful that you had the presence of mind about you to write this book. Because <laughs> I, I, if only for me, and, and now I'm glad we get to talk about it. Me oh, too. And I'm glad it's a, a, been of service to you and, and, and impressed with you and your friends from back in the day watching that series. You know, it's funny, I just related to that for years. Well, actually, back in the early 90s, 
Ligonier produced for the first time a teaching series designed for high school kids. Mm-hmm. And it was called uh, Choosing My Religion. Yep. I've done that one too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That title, I, uh, that was my title that I came up with because I was, of all the staff, probably the most immersed in pop culture at the time. Um, we we even we, did that in our in our Church of Christ. You know, I don't know if you may not may or may not know this. I come from the Church of Christ background, but we did that in, in a Church of Christ, like as a video series. Well, and we, that's, it, it sold really well, and that led to a, a essentially a sequel called Ultimate Issues. Uh-huh. And eventually, they made a, a version of the Holiness of God called Fear and Trembling. And they wanted to sort of expand that whole franchise. And at this point, I, I'm getting introduced to homeschooling and and homeschoolers. And I said, you know, to the team at Ligonier, I said, well, I can get you a whole library full of solid teaching tapes on VHS uh, (laughs) for homeschoolers uh, without you having to do any work at all. And they were all excited. And I said, all you got to do is just sell them what we already have. Yep. (laughs) There's no reason a reasonably diligent homeschooled high schooler could not benefit greatly from what we already have. And that's exactly what you did. So I'm, I'm glad for it. Yeah, it was it was a huge thing for me. I, I really can't understate how how important it was uh, to me in so many different ways. You know, as a as a young as a young man, just really focused on math and science. I mean, as you as you noted, I'm I'm professional in engineering now and uh, even got my Ph.D. in it. Yeah. Uh, and that's. You know, but I think that just you're expanding your mind and these sorts of things is really crucial. And for our, I mean, really, I guess we could say as a side note here for our younger listeners, uh, if you're wondering whether you have the capacity to do this, the answer is yes, you absolutely do. You can you can learn these sorts of things. And there are people out there like uh, both of our Dr. Sproles, the one our one in his past and our one who is current, who can who can teach and who bring these things to us. And, and we're so grateful, you know, for, for our Christian forebears, you know, both uh, who've passed and who are now with, still with us uh, to do these sorts of things. So I think that's just, it's, it's worthwhile to kind of point that out because we, we should. And, uh, and homeschooling, of course, is, you know, is a, is a great way of doing that. <laughs> now, uh, now let's see, I, I have a, I have a whole bunch of things we could talk about, of course, but let's, uh, we've kind of hit on a few things I wanted to talk about here already, but I want to, I want to, of course, give you some opportunities to make sure that you get to say what you, the things that you want to say here about growing up with RC, both the book and just in general. So is there, you know, you've already stated that, you know, a common question you get is, well, what was it like to have RC as a father? And you've kind of clarified a little bit about what this means to you, but what do you feel are, are some of the th- other things that people kind of miss out on or perhaps important lessons that, you know, your dad taught you that you feel are like worthwhile to keep spreading around? Well, you know, to help people understand who haven't yet got the book, and I, I hope that describes everyone who hasn't yet got the book, but. Uh, <laughs> well, it's not really out yet, is it? I mean, <laughs> no, not yet. That's true. Yeah. Um, the, the approach that I took in writing this book was not so much to to pick a time frame and work my way through it. Uh, it's not a biography, but what it is is each chapter. And also, it's it's not hagiography either. So. Right, <laughs> right. It's not, uh, and that's on purpose. But on the other yeah. side, it's also not. Uh, muckraking i right <laughs> I, I actually had some people sort of thinking that must be what's coming 
uh, as the book's been promoted. And I just think, oh, yeah, keep saying that because anybody who reads it will see it's exactly the opposite. It's it's not hagiography, as you say, but it is a loving tribute to my father. Um, yeah. But what I wanted to say was the approach that I took was each chapter is a story that actually happened about an actual conversation that I had with my father somewhere along the way. And the chapter will sort of set up what's going on. Here's the context. Here's what was going on in my life. And here's how my dad spoke into it. And so what I wanted people to take away from this was that uh, theology for my father was not a, a subject that you studied and mastered. It wasn't, uh, you know, the Bible wasn't a great book that you studied and mastered. Rather, the Bible studies you, and theology is profoundly relational and can't live and may, and remain in the abstract. That just as God himself took on flesh and dwelt among us, so our theology needs to take on flesh and live among us as well. And so these stories are opportunities to show how my father did that. And one of the things that I, I talked about in the book was, you know, when people think about my father and they think about the intelligence and they think about the ability to communicate and to teach, I think a lot of people imagine that my father sort of constructed this elaborate, but again, abstract, systematic theology. And when he would go and teach lay people, he would, you know, take a piece of that systematic theology and then sort of search the world for the, the good analogy, a good word picture, a good illustration to communicate that truth. Uh, because that's typically how we do it. We, we, we start with an abstract idea and then we want to come up with a nice story to illustrate a flannel graph kind of approach. But that's not what my dad did. When my dad drew a parallel between some theological truth and some experience that he had or a parallel between a theological truth and something we all already know, he did it because he already saw it. When he looked at the thing itself, he looked at it in light of his theology. He didn't have two worlds, one abstract and one concrete, but they were one world, which is, again, why I was so blessed with so much grace. If I have a, a message burning in my heart right now for the last few years, it is this, that we are convinced or that we're, we're unable or unwilling to move from affirming the doctrine of man's sinfulness and the reality of original sin. We can all affirm that. We can all say, yes, that's true. But we can never really say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, the doctrine of original sin is a doctrine about mankind. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, is a confession about who and what I am. And that's what we need. We need to be able to own our sin. In the same way, Jesus didn't just come to make salvation possible or to die for sinners. Jesus came to atone for my sins. And my heavenly Father loves me and adopts me into his family by name, one at a time. And, and again, so the more real, the more concrete your theology becomes, the more you actually understand what it's saying. Uh, let me give you an illustration. It's actually not from my father, but I, I mentioned in passing in the book the blessing that I had to study at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. 
And I mentioned some of the great men who taught me there. My father, I took every class he ever offered, but I was also blessed to go all the way through the Old Testament with Dr. Richard Pratt, who now runs Third Millennium Ministries. He's just a brilliant man and a fine, godly man. And he was trying to help me get this point that I'm trying to help everybody else to get right now. We were having a, a, a discussion in class, and he asked me this question. He said, R.C., does God have a strong right arm? And I, of <laughs> course, was really offended by this question. I thought, what a what a softball. Why, why in the world would he ask me something so simple? And I kind of sighed, and I said, no, Dr. Pratt, God does not have a strong right arm. God is omnipotent. And he said to me, R.C., the Bible says... God has a strong right arm. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe maybe Dr. Pratt lost his place in his notes and he's got to take a look at them and he's sort of doing a tag team thing here. And he wants me to give a, a little five-minute lecture on anthropomorphic language for the rest of these students who aren't quite as brilliant as I am. <laughs> so I gave this long speech about anthropomorphic language. Yes, Dr. Pratt, the Bible does say that. The Bible uses anthropomorphic language. The Bible says God has eyes that roam to and fro across the earth, but the Bible also says God is a spirit and he has no body. So we know that this is a, an illustration of his omnipresence and his omniscience. And in the same way, strong right arm is his omnipotence. And I finished my speech and he said, R.C., the Bible says that God has a strong right arm. And the bell rang, class was over, and I walked away thinking, I have no idea what that guy said. And it was literally 10 years later that it came to me, and I realized that when we think we're taking the language of Scripture, God has a strong right arm, and we translate it into God is omnipotent to find our place in our systematic theology, God is omnipotent, we think we're actually zeroing in on the truth, that we're, we're bringing the Bible's truth into greater focus. And the reality is we're actually making it more fuzzy. We're missing it. Because what I discovered was the idea of God having a strong right arm not only communicates the raw power of God, but it communicates that he's for us, that he's on our side, that it, it's that, that language is an invitation for us like a child to, to put our fingers around God's bicep while we're sitting on his lap. And so taking that and abstracting it into omnipotence is actually moving us away from the truth. It is true he's omnipotent, absolutely. But it's moving us away from greater clarity about who God is. So again, having our theology be organic, having our theology be enfleshed is just vitally important to really understanding it, and more important, vitally important to our own sanctification and to our capacity to glorify God. And your dad also gave us, like, I remember this very clearly in the Holiness of God series, talking about, you know, the imminence and transcendence of God. Yes. And and what you're saying, which is, is wonderful, is that we it's it's totally cool and and understandable to be focused in on God being transcendent. But guess what? That strong right arm is right next to you. Yes. That's pretty imminent right there. Yes. You know, in fact, close I've by. argued before that it may very well be the most transcendent thing about God yes. is his imminence. Well, it's yeah, it's remarkable to think that, yes. you know, the almighty creator of the universe would deign to lower himself to this sort of 
plane of existence, if you will. Yes. But he but he loves his creation. He loves each and every one of us, and that's why he does it. Amen. And, and it's insane when you think about it. It's a crazy kind of love, but it yeah, is exactly what he does. Your joy your peace, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's a one. It's it's a great thing. It's a great thing. And uh, and that yeah, that was you know not not only is it is it something that your dad uh, kind of inculcated through his ministry but he inculcated it into you obviously and, and that's that's great but we and as you've and you know it's it's a good point to or a good time to just say you know as you said in the book and as uh, many times like you know we serve a great god we really do yes <laughs> it's so wonderful you know and th- and this actually is a pretty good segue here to you know your dad had a really great way with words and just turning phrases in fact i would i say it was it's very inspirational to me even now just in the sense of i want to craft the way i talk about theology about philosophy about issues ethics all of these things in a way that is both accurate and precise but also inspirational yes at at times and it, 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 he really cha- – your dad and you you challenge us to think deeply about our actions, our attitudes, our beliefs. And so you, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this and you know, perhaps a, how this – how your dad had an effect upon you in this way as a young man, as an adult and, and so on. Well, you know, I developed my own interest in theology when I was in high school. And part of the reason for that – was you know in a, again in a very organic way as I was being raised, my father very much trained my mind not only in terms of content but in terms of how it operates, the logic of things and the and the interrelationship of ideas. My father, like his mentor John Gerstner, they were both able to take an idea, whether it was their own idea or the idea of someone they're talking with, and they were able to see. The consequences, if I can use yeah. that expression, they were able to see the consequences of that idea so much better than the person they were talking to. And it would often drive people crazy, especially with Dr. Gerson. Dr. Gerson would say, well, if you, if you believe this, you'd have to believe that. And they would be horrified at, at the, the end result <laughs> of what they're affirming and be upset that he's accusing them of that. But what he really means is if you were consistent and coherent, this is where he would be led. And I know you don't want to go there. So let's fix this back here. Uh, so you don't Check your premises. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so my father did all of that for me. And then when I started sort of taking in the information, the theological information, everything just had its place. Everything fit together so nicely, so powerful. That's what it's like to have a systematic theologian for a father. <laughs> it's just, it all fit but it, again, not it, it fit because he trained my mind. Yeah, and yeah. in the same way, he taught me to appreciate good communication, elegance in communication. You know, I, it, it was at that time that I started reading all of his books, uh, and I would just eat them up. In fact, I remember even reading his novel, which is his probably least well-known book and shortest in print. But he wrote a novel that was Actually, I referenced in the book, um, yep. it's really quite good in my judgment, but I remember reading that and all of a sudden after having this strong ideological drive in me that I wanted to know and teach and defend the reformed faith and not coincidentally, I wanted to know and to teach and defend a freedom philosophy. Both of those things were in me, but as I'm reading my dad, all of a sudden I developed this love for language. And I wanted to know how to write well. 
I w- and, and just like you described, I, I wanted to learn how to communicate well. And honestly, you know, if, what, what did you say? You, I think you said it about this phrase, some well-turned phrase in the book that we both liked. <laughs> oh, well, the, the, there was the, the, the one about, uh, your, you comparing your 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 fields to the space shuttle to the paper airplane. Yes, <laughs> you know when you say that to me, you don't know how much that just rings my bell. I mean, my my face lights up because that <laughs> was an expression that I thought, man, that's good. I hope people like yeah. it. And 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 you you know you I didn't have to ask for it. I didn't have to go fishing for it. You just yeah. gave it. Um, so. I learned to just love that kind of thing from him and and to appreciate the importance of beauty in the communication of truth. That is terrific. And one of the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded also of, uh, you know, you, you start bringing up politics. And so we're going to definitely attack that here in a minute uh-huh. uh, and get into it. But uh, there's definitely something I kind of, I, I thought that was, arguably one of the most poignant chapters in the book. And I, cause I think it, it has a real significance to those of us both in, you know, in the church and thinking about theology and also as libertarians and especially for us as Christian libertarians. And you have this chapter in there about angry young men yes. and, uh, and your dad's phrase that he told you there was great. And I, it, would you be, would you be willing to kind of talk us through a little bit about your experience about angry young men? I will, but and, yes. and it's gonna it's gonna get us to our segue very quickly. Yeah, yeah. For this reason, <laughs> um, I was uh, I I was you know raised in Ligonier, Pennsylvania, about an hour southeast of Pittsburgh. I loved it there. It was an ideal upbringing. I had loving parents. I had close friends. I lived in the middle of this beautiful fifty acre piece of land with woods and hills and fields. It was just amazing and wonderful. The only downside was there wasn't very many good choices for an education. Now, I had a good education through junior high, through a private school, but it ended there. And my parents wanted me to get a good education. And we started looking for private schools. Well, right about this time, there was a fellow who was an industrialist from Wichita, Kansas, who was a supporter of Ligonier. In fact, he was the one who financed the creation of our first video studio where so many of these series were filmed that Ligonier still sells. Uh, He bought us all of this equipment and uh, became a friend with my father. Well, this fellow, his name is Robert Love, this fellow was not only you know a, a committed Christian man, not only a successful businessman, he was also profoundly active in libertarian thought back before libertarian was cool. This was back in the, the <laughs> he and his libertarian buddies actually built a private turnpike in Kansas. He started this school that I did end up going to and a few years into the school's existence, a bureaucrat from Topeka showed up and said, uh, Mr. Love, we're missing your paperwork for your starting of this school. And Mr. Love said, you're not missing anything. We didn't send any paperwork. <laughs> and of course, the bureaucrat's all, you know, sputtering and doesn't know what to do. He's got a box to check and he's not going to be able to check it. And Mr. Love said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, um, you can pick any class 
in any school in the entire state. And we will send our corresponding class to that school and you give that class and our class the same test. And if your class does better than my class, then I'll sign your papers. In, in any subject, right? There's yes. A- <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the bureaucrat walked away and never came back. So that's the place where I went to school. And in fact, when I went out to visit the school in the providence of God, it happened to be the same week that Mr. Love was putting on his annual conference in conjunction with the Foundation for Economic Education. Oh, wow. And so they took me to this lecture uh, in this hotel ballroom with this German guy who had this thick accent and he started talking about economics and oh my goodness <laughs> i was absolutely smitten that gentleman was dr hans sanholtz uh one of the very few gentlemen to have received their phd's from from mises ludwig von mises yeah and goodness gracious yeah <laughs> that's was, amazing yeah. now that was the night i invited von mises into my heart <laughs> <laughs> I was absolutely smitten. Now, Mr. Love had had fed my father some some books and certainly had moved my father from uh, probably a, a general centrist Democrat at that time. Keep in mind our historical context. Yeah, right. This would have been in the eight, early 80s to a, a conservative Republican. But I kind of just raced right by him. You know, I I. He went from a limited government Republican, and I became a a full blown minarchist, and uh, and that led to uh, a lot of fun discussions. And in, in fact, it actually led to my first book, which is called Biblical Economics. And my father wrote the foreword to it. And in that, he he was gracious enough to admit that I'm I'm the one who continued to goad him in that right direction. <laughs> and uh, that was certainly the case. It sounds uh, like me and my dad. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Well, I mentioned the, the common question, what's it like to have R.C. Sproul as your father? Another common question I get is, you know, did you, you and your father ever disagree on anything significant? And I would always say nothing, nothing significant. No, we did disagree on strategies, applications, uh, outworkings, you know, like I mentioned that thinking ahead for moves, we might agree on move one, but by the time we get to move five, I'm in a little bit of a different place. Sure. But I would always tell my dad, I would say, dad, I want you to know that when, when you go left there and I go right, and I don't mean that politically, when you go one direction and I go the other direction, I want you to understand that I'm going the direction I'm going because I believe that's the consistent response from our shared bedrock conviction. Right. I'm not leaving you. I think I'm being more consistent than you with what you and I both agree on. That's that's really interesting you say it that way because that was precisely, incidentally, how I presented my shift over to libertarianism to my parents. Uh-huh. And to that end, you know, just the real short story is that you know, I, I sort of in, indirectly discovered Mises and Rothbard and Hayek and and Sinholtz and others. And ultimately, you know, realized that I had better arguments here in libertarianism than I did in conservatism. And when I told the, some of this stuff to my parents, they were like, "Why? Why do you think like? Well, why do you think like this now?" And 
ultimately I had to say, look, you taught me yeah. to, to, to be, do you taught me to be like this, to yes. go search after the truth and be consistent. And I'm telling you now, I am trying to be more consistent than I was before. And I think you could be that way too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come along. Come it's on. a great place working out your thoughts. Come yep. with me. Yep. And, uh, and to, and to their credit, they've, uh, they've kind of followed me along on that one. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty great. They're, they're, uh, they're actually donors in fact to the LCI. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been great, but yeah, I'm sorry. You should continue. So, well, I just, I, I may be at the place where the story's over, but it, oh. it happened. Well, and Oh, actually, actually, I, I have to throw this out there too. I thought it was hilarious in the book and I, I was reading this on a plane and and I just busted out laughing when when you were writing in your chapter about and you just you just sort of casually throw out there like oh yeah I was already into Austrian economics and 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 libertarian thought you hadn't brought it up any point in the book before and nope. it's just like you threw it out there like it was just this like well known completely common thing that like of course I do this <laughs> <laughs> and I was like if you don't if you don't know if you don't know then you just you you just pass you over and go like what in the world oh, is he yeah, talking about but it's no, great no, it's so bad. great no, I, I should have probably stopped to explain that a little bit <laughs> no it was, it was terrific that, um, oh gosh when I was when I was probably 16 which would have been uh, 1981, I went to the local library in, in Ligonier, Pennsylvania, and I checked out their copy of Human Action. Oh, and I took goodness. it home, and I read it, and I got to admit, I did not enjoy it. Um, it, was, <laughs> it was a uh, a, a reading of duty, but then I took it back, and then, oh, probably mm, 20 years later, I was back in the library, and I went to check and see uh, who else had read the book? And lo and behold, no one had. <laughs> the last person to check it out was yeah. you. <laughs> I would be very surprised to even see human action in a St. Louis County library. Yeah, that's think, probably that's true. It's one of those got to be on the banned book list or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, we, we had a lot of fun. And I, I do want to say this, that in the same way that my father trained my mind and I, I mentioned – how in systematic theology, you know, basically, if you can if you can master a few basic principles, then everything else is the outworking of those principles, and you can follow where it's going to go without having to learn new content. You know, you, you you master these few tools, and I felt like free market economics was exactly the same thing. There was a, a an elegance and a harmony to it. Uh, I remember when I was a student uh, uh, of Hans Senholtz, I, I ended up going to Grove City College to study with Senholtz, and we published a little newsletter called The Entrepreneur, and every issue, Dr. Senholtz had a column, and every column, it was like he 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 just took out the name of Federal Program X and the budget for Federal Program Y, and he just replaced it each time with a different program. It would be the same problems. This is the same way. <laughs> you know, It's going to interfere with the market in this way, and the fruit's going to be this and every single time. And, and you know, just honestly, just virtually by mastering uh, the law of supply and demand alone, you get it. You'll, you should be there. So anyway, I, I was just very, very blessed, and I did – you know, over the years, try to drag my father along the way. And, and he would, he would backslide, you know, he was a a terrible backslider. He would, uh, <laughs> he would turn on his Fox news or his talk radio and, and he would 
you know, just get sounding more and more uh, Republican again. But if you actually engaged him in a conversation on the issues, he he got it in a really powerful way. It's it is interesting how so many times that is what happens. That it's yeah. hard it's hard to toe the the typical party line when you're also having to go toe to toe with the words of Jesus. Uh, I, I, yes. I, I kind of feel that way with a lot of Christian libertarian literature and uh-huh. in, in the way we have to talk sometimes it, it, like, because all you got to do is start, you know, again, like, kind of like you said, if you understand core principles, it's going to be hard to maintain certain things down the line. If we start trying to be consistent with what you're actually saying. Yes. And that's, and, and if anything, our call as Christian libertarians to our, our fellow Christians out there who, who are, who have not quite got the same understanding yet is get consistent. Yes. And uh, that is that especially get consistent with Jesus. Like, well, and that, that's, I think there's something very powerful about the principle of loving your neighbor and right. how that is manifest in, you know, marketplaces where we're, we're not using the power of the sword. And that's sort of where I'm like anybody else, I suppose. At the end of the day, when I'm I'm trying to win people, I keep trying to tell them, you know, the difference between you and me is I believe in liberty. Uh, I'll give you an illustration. Years ago, uh, in about 2004, I think it was, not sure, I was invited to debate with Robert Reich on television in England. Now, this is not Robert Reich, the labor secretary. This is Robert Reich, the Stanford professor. Okay. And he had published some really nasty pieces against homeschooling, arguing that homeschooling should be suppressed because it doesn't allow kids to learn inclusiveness and it allows them to be sort of indoctrinated in very narrow views. Well, so he and I were there in the television studio in London, and he was expecting basically the kind of person who wants to control the government schools. Right. And I just he just didn't know what to do with me when I kept saying to him, look, brother, I don't care how you teach your kids. They're your kids. Can you give me the same liberty, please? You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I understand, but basically what you're saying is, is we can't let you homeschool because if we do, your kids won't end up like my kids. And, and yeah. the, you know, what an irony that you're afraid that my yeah. kids are going to be fascists. And the, therefore, because of that, you're going to insist that the state educate them. Well, what happened to that narrowness again? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've, man, I've had similar conversations, just not quite so public and on TV. But <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, and, and this this is fascinating. I'm I'm so glad we were kind of able to talk about some of these things because I was really curious. Uh, you know, just again having grown up with RC in a different way to see you and your own kind of ways of thinking differ and and whatnot from him and how that came to pass is just I think it's really fascinating. Let me just mention this to uh, this guy, this Robert Love. My f- first book, which was on biblical economics, was dedicated to him. And to his wife, Lil, he was a lifelong friend, as was his wife. To me, he was like a grandfather to me, a uh, deep friend to my parents. He owned a box factory in Wichita, Love Box Company. And along the whole length of the factory floor where these cardboard boxes were made, 
although I should say corrugated paper boxes or he'll roll over. <laughs> uh, yeah. He had these big metal sort of cabinets, you know, that are portable that you can move. And each one of them was just filled to the brim with all the great works coming out of the Foundation for Economic Education or places like that. And I would walk in there and walk out just heavy laden with copies of Bastiat's The Law, copies <laughs> of Economics in One Lesson, uh, the anti-capitalist mentality, the, the, you know, not yours to give, the Elijah Complex, I Pencil, uh, all these uh, sort of classic works that, that shape so many of our thinkings. And then I would go out and hand them out to all of my friends and, and create this sort of little high school cadre of uh, little, not just Christian, but reformed libertarians. Awesome. Yeah. That's terrific. So I'm curious, did you ever meet in your sojourns with, uh, with Fee at the time, did you ever meet like Edmund Opitz or any of those folks? Yes, I did meet Ed Opitz. Uh, I attended a, Oh, and by the way, Bob Love was actually president of Fee for a time late in his life uh, after oh. Leonard Reed passed away. Okay. Um, yeah, I met Ed Opitz. I attended Mr. Love, in fact, sent me and a guy named Paul Cleveland. I don't know if you know Paul or have interviewed him. He I, I know Paul, actually. Well, he may not remember me, but I've met him at, at Mises Institute before. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. And he, Paul's wife was an administrative assistant at Reform Seminary when I was a student there. Mr. Love sent Paul and I up to a week event up there at uh, Irvington on Hudson. And Ed Opitz was there. He was very old. Bettina Greaves was there. Uh, I met Father Sirico that week. Okay. And I met uh, Doug Bandow. Oh, (laughs) Doug is great. Yes, he is. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's been on our uh, on the podcast before, in fact, and we uh, I, I'm very pleased to have him as a buddy here and there, and get to get to talk to him whenever I get up to DC. Uh-huh. He's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, he is. Well, uh, so so I, I do want to get back to one other thing though in the book, and this might be a great way to kind of conclude because this is a this is a really I would say crucial lesson for young men and women who encounter new ideas make some sort of change and then they start seeing all that's wrong in the world. And that was the, the, your chapter on angry young men. I want to get back to I'm that sorry. for yeah. a second. That was all and, a distraction. I'm sorry that we, we no, no, it's, we, it's, it's all related. It's all related. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I was an angry young man in part because I was not home where I wanted to be. I was an angry young man in part because I was learning that, you know, all the happy God bless America, founding fathers stuff we were getting rid of. We were throwing overboard. It just frustrated me that we were moving in the swiftly in the direction of more and more socialist thought. And so there was a lot of pride that where I thought, you know, the world would be so much better if people would just listen to me. That was the gist of it. Uh, a <laughs> typical thing for an angry young man. If everyone just listened to me, everything would be fine. And, you know, again, it cultivated pride in me. And that's that's the danger. And I'm glad that it came, comes up. The danger when you grasp something, whether it is the Christian faith, whether it is some particular understanding of the Christian faith, whether it is libertarianism, when you grasp something unusual and rare, it's the devil is right there beside you, whispering in your ear, telling you, you're so much wiser than everybody else. You're so much smarter than everybody else. If only people would listen to you. 
and just puffing us up. This is why Paul uses that language of knowledge puffs up. It's not because knowledge is bad, but the devil's right there to tell you, hey, you're you're really something. Everybody else stinks. And that's where I was. I was angry. I was cynical. And what my father said to me, again, without a word, without anything said, we're just sitting, we just sat down, we just ordered our dinner. And he said to me, son, the shortest, easiest way to develop a reputation as an intellectual is to adopt the pose of a cynic. Now, that was, A, profoundly insightful in itself, that, that, that concept that, that to recognize that the cynic, his reputation as an intellectual is, is really grounded in his cynicism. But also, it was incredibly wise to speak that into my life because he knew I wouldn't want to take a shortcut. I wouldn't want to cheat my way into a reputation. And what he taught me was really the beginning of a shift from, or in addition to, I, I put it this way, I, I, I want to be a man filled with rage because the world is not the way it's supposed to be. But I also want to be a man with an unshakable peace because the world not being the way it's supposed to be is exactly the way the world is supposed to be. <laughs> so I want both of those things. And I only had one of those things. And what my dad was saying to me was, son, God is in control and you have every reason to celebrate and to give thanks. And if you want to be intellectually honest, then you need to be able to see and appreciate goodness and truth and beauty and not just to have a dismissive, a cynical perspective on these things, but you need to have eyes to see these things. And it really changed my life. You know, my, my most recent book prior to this growing up with RC is a book called The Call to Wonder. And it's a, a, an exposition of what it means to have a childlike faith. And so much of it is is just sort of grew right out of that one conversation. A lot of it came from experience of, of raising lots of children, but it started, that seed was planted with that conversation where I thought, okay, I need to be open to honestly be moved, to honestly be touched, to not be shut off, but to be vulnerable and to be authentic if I'm ever going to have a meaningful life. Well, that is a that's a great message to hear, and I'm I'm also it was struck in the in the book and in that chapter in particular about how you know adopting that pose as a cynic, going and becoming that angry young man may may get you attention. It may it may result in a partial career, and we see that all the time. Yes. I mean, with our with the in the right wing and the left wing, for yes. that matter. In there, if you want to, you want to be on, you want you want to be famous. Yeah, go be a cynic and get on Fox News and uh, or or CNN or whatever, and and rant about you know whatever president is in power or whatever, and all that. You can do that. Are you going to get anywhere other than for yourself? I mean. Is that what you really want for yourself? Right. And I and I think that that sort of subtext to what your dad was telling you there too was just man. And you, you've kind of hinted, you've told you've told us that, but that was that was striking, and that kind of goes to that you know even turn of the phrase that your your dad had an ability to kind of put forward there. Yes. And and in the book, you also talk a little bit about uh, well Frankie Schaefer and yeah. in that regard, and and kind of the contrast. To this is like you want to see where what it ultimately can lead to in your faith. 
Yes. It yes, can, well said. it can be bad. And, and I think that it's really easy. I mean, I know I've sort of encountered this in my own life in a little, for a little bit to where it was entirely possible for me to be so down on, on the church because of the way that I saw at the time. And I thought I was, and I thought I was a pretty smart guy, yeah. you know, and all that, but that's not the way that I want to be ultimately. And, uh, and, and hopefully I think, you know, again, kind of to make it all really meta here, I hope that is, that it exudes in our conversation here today and also just in LCI in general, uh, in that we, we, not only do we see what is wrong in the world and we think we can tell you various things about what's wrong in the world, <laughs> but we want to exude this positive, the positive sense about what God is doing in the world, both through the church and also just in general through the marketplace and the wonder that is, that is this amazing world that we live in. Amen. And that's, I think that's, that's really exciting. And I'm, I'm was glad to see that in the book. And uh, I think that the chapter on angry young men is, is, uh, is just a, a great, a great exposition for in lesson for, for anyone who wants to, you know, go in and check it out. I think it's great. So Dr. Sproul, I, I think it's, we're going to, we're kind of running down with, uh, with uh, what we wanted to talk about today, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to like, do you have any, what, what kind of further thoughts you might have or messages that you want to make sure that we hear about today, words of encouragement or anything that, that it kind of, that you have just uh, sitting on your heart that you want to share with us and that, uh, that you'd want to make sure that we hear. Well, I don't know that I have anything specific left that I haven't, uh, you know, weaseled <laughs> in one way or another. I, I I will tell you just once again, that, and just encourage your listeners to please, please, whatever you can do, wherever you can find it, wherever you can be helped in this direction, I want to encourage you to own the reality of your own sin. I want you to own the reality of the atoning death of Christ and his perfect life. And I really want you to own the love of your heavenly father for you as you wrestle with frustration, whether it be in the church, whether it be on, on political issues, do not ever lose sight that Jesus is reigning and ruling right now. And because of him, your heavenly father loves you with an everlasting love that cannot be lost. And that's wonderful. I want to leave with everybody with one more thought on the book. And that's that just as you really put forward in the book, your dad is this, is, is such a loving father and he left a, such a great impression on you. It drove me to think about my own father and, and the great way in which my dad has been such a wonderful influence on me and all of the, the amazing things that, that our heavenly father bestows upon us as well. And, I think it, we really can't do any better than conclude our podcast today with "We do serve a great God." That is how I en ended the book, and and, uh, and and that was the phrase that I you know thought of as I as I concluded that. And I think that's a good way we can conclude here. Uh, so, Doctor Sproul, I'm again super grateful that you were able to to make some time for us here. Um, you know, it's been wonderful to talk to you, and we wish you all the best and for you you and your family in Christ and in Liberty. We we want to give you a blessing. So thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And so that is our podcast for today. Uh, again, this is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.